Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Expanding Economics podcast. This is Sophia speaking. Before we get started today, I want to plug another McGill podcast by the McGill International Review. They recently did an episode with our co-host, Andrew, interviewing Professor Moshe Lander. Professor Moshe Lander teaches a lot of the introductory economics classes at McGill, and they discuss why he finds that these classes are so important and how they can go on to shape someone's experience with the discipline. So that'll be linked below. Please do check it out. The last few episodes of Expanding Economics, we've been talking about inflation, and we felt this was a very important topic to talk about right now, considering it's something we're all experiencing and observing in our daily lives. As an economics student, it's really interesting to take, try and take these theories that were taught in class, which in the moment when you're trying to solve the calculus don't make so much sense, but then actually start to observe the trends happening in real life and see what you can and cannot explain yourself. So in our first episode, we talked a lot about COVID and fiscal spending and whether that has contributed to the inflationary pressures we're feeling now. After that, we talked about the Russia-Ukraine conflict as well as our dependency on oil as a resource to drive our economy and how that's contributed to inflation. Now I want to go back and look at inflation from a more theoretical and historical perspective and kind of unpack why both low and high inflation are problems and what economic theory is not able to explain about these two phenomena. In the end, uh, me, Raya, and Andrew will be discussing a very hot topic in economics, and that is, is inflation a monetary phenomena? And this is a debate that takes place between the more neoclassical orthodox school of economics and the alternative views, such as Keynesian economics. Before talking about high inflation, which is what we're experiencing in the moment, I kind of want to look at I, f- I find that it's useful to think about things in juxtaposition. Sometimes it gives you a little bit more clarity of the problem you're looking at. So I'm going to start with the problem of low inflation. I believe that looking at this problem is important because it has a lot of explanatory power towards why some of the economic and fiscal decisions made in the last couple of years were made. Ever since the 1970s oil crisis and oil shock and little inflationary period, in that time occurred, that's kind of the last time we've dealt with inflation. Over the past 50 years, and that's quite a long time, we've actually been experiencing the problem of low inflation. And the reason that's a problem is because low inflation means low economic growth or stagnant economic growth. It's typically thought that a little bit of inflation is actually a good thing and how much is debatable, but Typically, it's agreed upon that 2 to 3% inflation reflects strong economic growth, a healthy economy, increases in wages, more productive technology, etc., and more value being added to society. It's not that it's good to grow the economic pie because that means that you can distribute more to everyone, that everyone's standard of living goes up. That's why a country that's thought to be more economically developed, quote unquote, would typically exhibit higher prices think the nordic countries pretty expensive to live there because the standard of living is quite high 
Anyway, so returning to the point of low inflation, the U.S. economy, and though I don't live in the U.S., it, it does standard, tend to be the standard measure, from the 1980s up until the late 90s, was experiencing this quote-unquote healthy economic growth. How it was achieving this growth is a topic I'm going to return to in a little bit. But yeah, 2 to 3%, pretty steady. Everyone was happy with that. That's a very strong, this was the Reagan era, really supported his campaign, his presidency, that the economy was doing so well. However, post-2008, so 2008 was 14 years ago now, that number has declined to remain around 1%, 1.5 in a good year. And this is problematic because it's essentially a stagnant economy. Without a little bit of rising inflation, this means wages aren't rising. It means that GDP isn't projected as, it doesn't project well on politicians in their plans to grow GDP. It also implies a loss of economic potential and it also creates this thing called entrenched expectations where essentially because people believe that the price might drop because or that it won't increase, they're going to withhold their demand. They're, they'd rather save their money than spend it and this keeps consumption low, which keeps GDP low. So from a political perspective, not a good thing whatsoever. So you may ask, okay, well, then why was this happening? There's a few explanations for that. Part of it is as simple as it's hard to achieve the same levels of growth percentage-wise as an economy grows. 10% on $100 is a lot less than 10% on $1,000. It's very simple math. But I think the explanation goes beyond this. And I think that, I think a big reason is our economy is simply more complex now. It's globalized. There's new technology being invented every single day that helps us do things faster, more efficiently, cheaply. And people's preferences are changing. To dive into each of these things just a little bit more, on the point of a more complex world, everything's globalized. It's really easy. A lot of companies and corporates will send their labor or there's other countries, people in other countries with lower wages come in and help them cut their costs, make a cheaper product for those in the West. So that keeps prices down. The, the fact that we're able to export labor, the fact that we're able to export services to places where we have to pay people less inherently brings the price down. Another reason is technological change. The fact that we're able to do things more efficiently. Logistics like Amazon, for example, are so efficient and well thought out that they're able to give us what we want at a way lower cost as opposed to 20, 30 years ago. But thirdly, beyond globalization and technological change, I feel like those are things that have been talked about a lot already. I want to bring to table the idea that young people especially, but people of all ages, don't necessarily want to consume the same things. I wouldn't go to say we don't want to consume as much, but we definitely don't want to consume the same things. I remember 10, 20 years ago, people wanted to consume material things and they wanted a lot of them. That little knickknack, that little souvenir, going to someone's house and them having a whole DVD collection, going to someone's house and they're having this whole makeup collect, all these things, I don't feel like young people are as into that anymore. I feel like we're kind of tired of it. I think we're all pushing back against that and wanting to minimize a little bit. But that doesn't mean 
that we're cutting out our consumption whatsoever. I just think our consumption is different. I think now people want to consume media. They want to consume services. They just don't want to consume material things. And all these things still have a price, but they're not counted for in typical CPI inflation measurements. So perhaps the prices of these things in these measurements are staying the same, but they're not what people are wanting anymore. So what I'm trying to get at with that is perhaps the CPI measurement says inflation is at 1%, but that's counting as certain items of goods that people aren't really interested anymore. Perhaps the prices of the goods that people are consuming are actually rising more than that, but it's just not being accounted for. So we're under the impression that inflation is low. And low inflation is an issue because neoclassical theory only really has one solution for it, and that is to lower interest rates. When you lower interest rates, it makes money cheaper, means people don't want to save their money, they just want to spend it. So you lower interest rates, and that incentivizes more consumption. But the problem with that is that interest rates can only become so low. And over the past 10, 14 years, we've seen near zero interest rates to try and stimulate consumption, but it's not really working anymore because they've been zero for or near zero for so long. So this is called a liquidity trap. And essentially, it's a problem because it ties the central bank's hand. When you're in a liquidity trap, there's not much that monetary policy can do to help bring the economy or adjust it to where it needs to be to its steady state. But the reason I bring up this problem of low inflation is I think this problem contributed a lot as to the type of fiscal spending we saw in the beginning of COVID. As I mentioned, the central bank's hands are tied to stimulate demand if anything happens that cuts it off. So when we get hit with the pandemic and our whole economy is shut down, they know that there's not going to be much that they can do to stimulate it again, to stimulate consumption again, besides pumping money into the economy. And I think that part of the reason, and I'm not saying that any of the fiscal spending done during COVID was the wrong thing to do, but it was slightly overshot. And I think part of the reason that it was overshot and that we took such an aggressive action with it is not only because it's what we had to do in the moment to support people, but just because inflation was a problem that had been off our radar for so long. And I feel like people forgot or we had no ex idea really where the upper limit or the boundary or the tipping point was because it's a problem that we haven't dealt with in a really long time and now we're in a completely different world where it's impossible to calculate what is too much fiscal spending, what's going to send us into um, inflation. But just like low inflation is a problem, high inflation is clearly also a very big problem. It both low and high inflation in their extreme forms lead to huge social unrest and in their more moderate forms lead to governments passing regulations and acting in ways to desperately just mitigate the problem and push it aside so it doesn't reflect badly on that. And we can see both of these dynamics unfold into separate historical examples. The first is post-World War one, Germany, or Weimar Germany, unprecedented hyperinflation and huge social unrest. And the second is the 1970s oil shock and the inflationary crisis that occurred then. So let's unpack both of these and see how they compare.
So I'm not going to go into every single detail of <laughs> Germany's history between World War One and World War Two. There's plenty of history podcasts for that, which probably explain it a lot better. But I'll just point out kind of the key facts that I think are relevant to my argument and to understanding the story. So post-war one, the German government is in a really poor position. They took out a lot of deficits to finance the war. They have all these sanctions they have to repay and it's pretty evident that they can't do that. So the German economy is in shambles. And on top of that, you have one million soldiers coming home and being thrown into the labor market at once, which means that unemployment becomes very, very low. And in economics, there is the Phillips curve, which tells us that when unemployment is low, that is a condition for inflation to be high. In the past 20 years, that relationship has kind of broken down. And there's many reasons for that. But in this time frame that we're looking at, it was very much true. So by September 1920, prices in Germany were 12 times higher as they had been before the war. And by 1921, just one year later, they were around 20 to 33 times as high. Um, out of fears of the mark devaluing and prices increasing so much, people start selling it off and this further plummets its value. And as its value plummets and people fear that prices are going to rise even more, their reaction is to overpurchase. So the plummeting value in currency is kind of the same thing as having a negative interest rate, which implies that you're losing money the more that you hold on to it. So people start overspending um, to protect themselves from losing money. and But this further drives resource scarcity and rising prices. And this is how we get into the cycle of hyperinflation. Once this hyperinflation takes hold in Germany, a really important thing to note is that it created a huge class conflict because business owners and merchants were profiting off of this. They were profiting off the higher prices that they were able to charge and the amount of product they were selling all at once, while the middle classes and lower class, especially lower classes, their wages were not rising to reflect these high prices because they were rising way too quickly and they were depleting their national savings. Uh, so we have this class tension and for a little bit, the bark goes up and down in value, up and down in value. The government takes various measures to try and stabilize the economy. However, the French invasion of Ruhr finally plummets its value and sends it, the economy back into hyperinflation. This happened around 1923. And a reason why the invasion of Ruhr was, the Ruhr Basin was so bad is because around 85% of Germany's coal resources were there. So um, if we can think back to our episode on oil and our dependency on it, what happens when your main source of power and energy gets cut off? Prices skyrocket. The mark falls once again. And in 1923, as also as a result of the Rurbazen invasion, we start getting food shortages in Germany. And finally, a state of emergency military rule is declared. In order to get the economy out of the situation, the German government takes one last action, and that is to issue a new currency. And this currency is the Rettenmark. The Rettenmark was not any different to the actual mark. It was backed by the exact same asset, lands, and industrial goods. However, what the government effectively did was a confidence trick on the population. Simply by issuing a new currency, a new paper money, it gave people the reason to think, even though it wasn't different, people thought it was, and that was enough to restore its value and bring back some stability. This, however, didn't last long. There was another mass employment 
crisis in 1925, which once again sent the economy into hyperinflation, increased divergence between the middle and upper classes, and employment never really recovered. And the story is important because it it was these unstable economic conditions that kind of provided a route for Hitler to start gaining power and traction. And while I think that the situation we're in today isn't, this isn't, Germany post-World War I is a very extreme example. I don't think we're anywhere near that point today. And I hope we never reach that point. But what's important about this story is that economic instability of any magnitude creates social tension. And within these social tensions, people start looking for something new and people start looking for change. And it's these are the times where new ideologies, paradigms, whether economic or political, kind of gain the opportunity to gain supporters and come into power. This trend of economic stability and then kind of a new political ideology or right-wing force coming in is something that was once again replicated um, in the 1970s oil crisis to a lesser extent. And just to give you a little bit of a background on that, even though it's been written about in almost every economic history textbook or sociology textbook ever, maybe my take will be slightly more insightful for you. (laughs) But yeah, so post-World War II, America, you have the Keynesian consensus and a booming economy. You have strong labor unions, you have a lot of government regulation, a lot of government support, things were going great. And then the 1970s oil crisis occurs, OPEC, da-da-da-da, the cartel, da-da-da, embargoes, da-da-da, and you start getting this phenomenon, which is the breakdown of the Phillips curve. Both unemployment were high because the economy went to recession, and inflation were high. And this is something that had never really been seen before, and people asked why. Why are we in this situation? And the neoclassical school, the Chicago school, was just emerging at that time. And their explanation was, it's the intense government intervention that's occurring in the economy. Their view is, the market should be free, let the invisible hand determine the equilibrium, while the Keynesian consensus was very much the opposite. It was very much that the markets cannot regulate themselves. Although the situation that occurred, the inflation, the recession, are not were not necessarily due to the government intervention. That's what was blamed for it. And in reality, the fact that there was the OPEC cartel and the embargoes and all that, those were forces, kind of external forces that caused the crisis. But when there's times of economic stability, a new school of thought emerges with proposed answer and solution to the problem and people grab onto that. And Many politicians also use that school to support their platforms and to gain popularity and power. Most notably, Reagan-Thatcher era comes into power. They use the neoclassical school to support neoliberalism, to support less government intervention, tax cuts, opening up the markets to global trade, etc. This this more right-wing view are able to gain traction in this time of economic stability because it's able to debunk the opposing ideology by blaming this instability on them, even though what occurred was kind of external to both parties. And so the neoliberal era or the neoclassical school of economics come into power this time and, and remains so up until 2008. It is in this time I mentioned previously that there was that 3 to 4% 
inflation, the quote-unquote healthy economic growth. And this healthy economic growth, a lot of it was actually driven by the process of financialization, deregulating the markets and opening up the world to globalization and global capital flows allows for the creation of this wealth out of seemingly nothing. It's all just fancy products. And this is where you start getting things like mortgage-backed securities. And this continues up until the 2008 crisis. And we all know what happened there. It wasn't too long ago. And then after 2008, we see the end of this era. We see a lot more financial regulation and government intervention. And this is kind of what lets us know that a lot of this growth was just from the process of financialization. Because after 2008 and kind of an increase in regulation of the markets again, we see that inflation and that economic growth drop to 1%, 1.5%, which is considered low. And that's the point we're in up until the beginning of COVID. And within this framework of the rise of neoclassical thought, a very key point was that inflation was a monetary phenomenon. That means that it is the increase in money supply that causes inflation. Thus, there should be no government intervention, no government spending, and no social support. The markets should be left to regulate themselves. And this is opposed to the view that, of the Keynesian school that says, no, inflation is not only determined by money supply. There's other factors, such as resource scarcity. And this brings us into that our previous discussions over COVID fiscal spending and also the Russia-Ukraine conflict. COVID fiscal spending, did it create inflation? Was it the increase in government deficits that led us to this point? Or was or is it in fact the oil crisis and how our dependency on one scarce resource? Is, is this the contributing factor or is it both? So this is a debate that this is where we stand today, really. And um, everyone has a very different view on the matter. But this is what me and Andrew and Raya are now going to discuss. So let's see what they think about it. This is Raya. And this is Andrew. So what comes to mind? What's the first thing that comes to mind for you guys when I say inflation? Inflation, neoclassical. There is a supply shock that happened, um, which caused this inflation to result in the economy. Okay. So for you, it's or from what you've learned, it's all about the supply side of things. Well, and that's initially like what they've what they've theorized okay okay very interesting andrew what's what comes to mind for you um more money um i guess right now it's like the it's, even if this wasn't intentional it's just linked to the word transitory for me just because of all the times i've just heard those two words linked together yeah it's like yeah, I remember even Ryan <laughs> brought in our first episode like that. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Andrew. And Raya, too, like when I think inflation, I think money supply. I think the government injected too much money into the economy. Mm -hmm. That's like what I feel like is kind of ingrained into us as economic students. And it's almost kind of teaches you that like, like they're trying to teach you like, no, the government should not do anything to help anyone. It's always comes at a cost. You should never... Yeah, and like yeah. the government has so much control over it. Like the government's freely printing all of these this money in it. Like yeah. it causes inflation, and this is how it is, as simple as just a money supply shock. Yeah, and um, for 
those of you who don't know about a little bit more economic history and kind of the schools of thought, this very neoclassical view that is taught to us stems mostly from the monetarist um, perspective. Milton Friedman is a very big name that people love to throw out there. And basically the idea is that money exactly that when you increase money supply it increases price levels but only that so we have real and nominal variables and the real variables are not affected by changes in money according to the theory raya do you want to kind of explain that a little more and i guess like nominal variables they're just expressed in current market prices and so when we say that money is neutral we mean that it has no effect on any of the real variables such as consumption government spending investment um, and so on and so forth yeah so this is the very big like main school of thought Um, but there's kind of some issues with that because yeah right now to the situation we're in it seems like this is true it seems like yeah the government put in a lot of money to the economy and now we're experiencing inflation so i guess i'll throw out a question do you guys do you agree with this perspective the cause of inflation it's a monetary phenomenon point blank uh yeah i i do believe that inflation is a monetary phenomenon really andrew that's very interesting. And can you give me explanation as to why? Um, well, I, I'm just going to stick to my guns and say the same thing that you've always known me to say, which is that inflation was caused by, in part by the Great Resignation, in part by the federal stimulus, in part by sanctions against Russia, in part by China's lockdowns. Basically, just all of those things coalescing into one perfect storm of inflation. Just, yeah, I, I, that's I, that's what I've said before, and I'm going to say that again. And I, I'm also interested to see, like, what do you think, Sophia, if it's not caused by monetary factors? Do you think, for, for instance, would businesses cause this as well? Like, who, who else would be in this equation? I think that monetary factors definitely do play a big role i think the amount of money in the economy is a huge it's really important Mm -hmm. but i think that we can't be so narrow-minded um another reason why there might be inflation might be because of population growth for example you have a population growth that's increasing now you have more people more people to feed taking up more resources you need more government spending that's gonna inc- that's gonna increase prices, mm-hmm. and that's gonna increase inflation. Um, but doesn't that go back to like monetary terms, government spending? It does, but it also goes to back towards resources and how many resources you have ex- you have available to mm-hmm. you. Okay. So you have more people that you need to feed, and that's gonna raise the price of food. Okay. Um, and I guess kind of an example in a way we see declining inflation in countries like Japan, and that's because they have declining population population growth rates, in in my opinion, mm-hmm. or at least that's one uh, re- reason. Another example is post baby boom. There was a huge rise in inflation. Why? Because the population growth rate increased mm-hmm. so much. I think uh, another possible cause for inflation could be social 
And we see this a lot in historical examples like post-World War I Germany as well as post-Soviet Union or USSR collapse. Um, again, these are stories that are like explained a lot better by a lot mm -hmm. of different people besides me. But for example, um, if people don't trust the value of money and they don't trust their government, that's going to devalue money and that's going to lead to inflation. So why they don't trust the government with the value of money could have to do with injecting irresponsible amounts of money into inflation, but it can also have to do with a lot of other social factors, in my opinion. I feel like you put a lot of good points out there and you try to make us think outside of like, normally, okay, yes, the central bank has a lot of control over how, inf like the inflation target and so on and so forth. But also like we, we organize as a society mm -hmm. and we shouldn't forget that. And we shouldn't forget that human behavior also has that sort of effect. I actually agree with that. I do think, um, I think people need to understand a lot of how economics is based on expectations. It's not really a hard science. It's not like if the central bank raises interest rates, it's not like you're basically pulling a lever that turns inflation down. It's more that the interest rates set a certain expectation about what the monetary power or the purchasing power of like a single dollar will be two months from now based on how people like it, it allows it, it gives people a baseline for predicting how much people will spend and what effect that'll have on the value of the dollar in a few months. You know, and I, I was also talking about this with a friend of mine and we were just at a cafe and she was like, they, they raised her pay um, and above the minimum her pay was already above the minimum wage and they raised her pay even more and she said that how businesses and all these small businesses this would contribute eventually to inflation the raise in pay um which i don't think i necessarily would agree with that i don't think that just blame this this sort of blame that we have on like these businesses trying to gauge their prices to make it to make it suitable to fit the current state of inflation is going to cause even more inflation yeah. um and i think this is just a reactivity to the current situation instead of it making it worse yeah i, th I think it's interesting and that you point out that like we shouldn't be we shouldn't be blaming people for just adjusting things to the to the situation that it's that it's in because the reality is kind of like um in the keynesian school mm -hmm. where prices are sticky mm -hmm. once a price is at a certain level no one wants to bring it back down again right that's true and it's <laughs> not like it's not like they have so much power to increase prices indefinitely like yeah. it's not like you can set whatever price you want because eventually you're gonna have another yeah. firm that's gonna compete with you and gonna lower their prices and then all your customers are just gonna go away so it's like more of like this bliss point yeah. that's just enough to be able to combat the current inflationary yeah. pressure but yeah. also like be able to carry on your business yeah and you mentioned the bliss point raya and that's something that um is mentioned in uh i think it's the intertemporal like yeah. monetary model so basically there's this trade-off between how much are you gonna tolerate a little bit of a rise inflation mm -hmm. for a decrease in output and vice versa mm -hmm. but the problem is like how do you know where this bliss point is yeah can you is it possible does it exist <laughs> i think you have to kind of set a model and 
go with what you have with your speculation expectations yeah. it's it, i don't i don't have an answer for that like i'm an <laughs> economic student i don't know what to say i can't say that yes there is or no there isn't but we build all our models based on assumptions and we try to say that our assumptions based on the rational way that we expect humans to behave yeah. is going to lead to is the best way to represent reality and so it might be the closest way to get to that bliss point but is it true it doesn't even exist i don't know but it definitely is there to help society function very interesting um andrew what are your thoughts do you think that businesses raising their wages in response to higher prices further perpetuates the inflation? Um, unfortunately, yes. Like this is one of those things where I wish it wasn't true, but it is true. Um, it just like it continues the cycle um, where like on the one hand, prices go up, that's inflation. And then when wages go up, that that causes prices to go up even more. And like that's, that's one of the sad truths um, about economics is that like a lot of the time when you want to help people, you have to do it in a really measured way or else you might end up creating extra consequences down the line in some other area. Is it, is it strong enough to, to make it cause like an inflationary pressure that that's going to lead to further inflation? I just I don't think that it's I don't think that businesses would have that much of a strong effect. Well, it, it obviously it depends, but I do think a lot of the time it does have an effect, especially if um, the businesses have a large market share. Yeah, but I'm talking about like small cafes, for example. Like if they're trying to have their business survive, should they just stick to the normal prices or like should they raise prices in terms of because to, to withstand all of the inflation that's happening or should they just... Well, no, we're like you have to, you have to separate um, like empirical statement from normative statement. If you want to say like those firms should still raise wages for um, their employees, then like that's perfectly fine. That's like a normative army argument, like notwithstanding the like the empirical consequences of what it has on inflation. So like if you want to say that they should still raise wage raise wages, that's fine. But I like I think that regardless of whether or not that's a good or bad decision, I do think that like that would have an effect on inflation. So now we've seen like the average price level go up and it's going to stay that way. Like, I don't think things are going to, even if there's a bit of a recession, I don't think we'll ever reach prices like there were 15, 20 years ago. That's just normal. Things increase over time. Mm -hmm. And I think at some point wages do have to be risen again to keep up with that because otherwise it's not sustainable for the economy. Mm -hmm. I guess the question is how, like, which, like how long, of a time frame or a, a gap does there need to be between the rise in consumer goods and the rise of wages? After how long can we raise the minimum wage where it won't further contribute in a way that's extremely harmful? Well, I, I, I don't think there is an answer. That's one of the problems with the fact that economics is not an exact science. It's not a hard science that you can like verifiably say, if you do this thing, then this thing will happen because there's just so much involved in the economy that like unfortunately there is no hard and fast number that we could like attach in terms of that this is where it's worth it and this is where it stops being worth it and that's a really um important point that you just said right there economics 
cannot be a hard science mm-hmm. because this is human's behavior in an extremely complex world and everything's so interconnected everything has a million unintended consequences we just live in this radically uncertain world but then a lot of economists who are sitting there next to the politicians advising them are sitting there saying we have this quantitative science and these empirical mathematical proofs listen to us do this, raise interest rates this mm-hmm. much and you're going to stop inflation and there won't be a recession. And then they say this to these politicians and then they do that and then no, they don't get held accountable. Yeah. Politics will definitely beat economics any day in the current yeah. 21st century. Like it's it's crazy to see the lack of 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 just basic knowledge and economics and everyone it, it's it's really fascinating to see how important it is currently in our lives and how much it dictates so many of the decisions that are being made and yet no one knows much about it so this this also reminds me of something that i talked about in lander the podcast that sophia plugged at the beginning is that like a lot of the time there are like things that would be good from like an economics perspective that aren't done for political reasons and vice versa. Like for example, like a carbon tax would be good from an economic perspective, but it's not being done for political reasons. Whereas like rent control is bad from an economic standpoint, but it like it often is being done for purely political reasons. And I do think like when it comes to like economists, like tooting their own horn and being really confident and saying like, you should do this thing. There are, there are definitely times where like, they're just like um, playing up the importance of economics or how, like how well they know something. But I do think that there are other times where like, when they say those things about like, what, what policies, what policies should be like enacted in order to improve the economy or whatever. I do think a lot of the time they're doing that. They're doing that because like, they know, they know certain things as economists that other people don't know and they don't really know how to communicate it beyond just saying that like it's really important that you do it and I guess a lot of the times I would agree with them some of the inflation we might have like might be a result of us trying to learn the lessons we did we we learned from the like the recovery from the 2008 recession of we need to pump more money into the economy or else human suffering will be a lot more devastating and we did, but I do think that like we 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 may have overshot that a little bit, and that's what's causing the current inflation, as sad as it is to say. Um, but I do agree that economists shouldn't be policymakers. But I think that's true. The same reason why like computer science majors or like like people who work in medicine shouldn't be policymakers. Like every every single person who works in a certain field tends to overestimate how important their field is to society. Basically, like no matter what field you're in. Um, so I do I do think like, but I do think that there are times where ec- economics goes unheeded because people don't really, like people who haven't studied it don't really know what the debate is in the first place. And they're only like, they're only listening to things that like make sense, like on a knee jerk perspective and not like studying a little bit and like learning more about where the debate comes from because there's so many different views on all these issues from the different schools like inflation you there's like probably three like Mm -hmm. really separated arguments but they're all grouped into economics so for the average person they just hear one economist say this one thing and they're like oh 
Makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It definitely, I mean, it definitely holds water at some point that, I mean, we're being taught this in school and although it, it, the reality reflects a much different story sometimes, it's there for a reason and it serves a purpose, but we need to have more people that question and contradict um, like the, oh. the beliefs put out there. And that's what our club is here for. Yeah, just to rant about that, which we don't <laughs> like our major. No, I'm just kidding. I like my major, but... Okay, so changing um, scope a little here. We've been talking a lot about, you know, um, Andrew mentioned learning the lessons of our past, like trying to put money into the economy to fix it. Um, and from this comes modern monetary theory. Mm-hmm. Hot topic in economics, very political topic in economics. And um, yeah, so basically modern monetary theory i don't fully like get what it's where it's coming from but basically the it says that we shouldn't worry about the government deficit anymore we shouldn't money is fiat money is not really backed by anything anyways print as much money as you want uh put it into the economy and that will generate growth which will generate tax revenue which will pay it back so let's let's get at it, sort of. Why why are people so into this? Does it just have a cool name? Because it's a cool name, MMT. Like, you know, like props to the marketing on that one. But I don't know about the actual theory. Um, I, I I a few months ago, I I was I, I was asking Lanter what MMT was, and he said that MMT was voodoo economics. Um, yeah. So like, the more I study it, the more, or at least the more I try to understand. What it's saying, the more it feels like the type of adherents to MMT are like the same type of people that would like refer to inflation as transitory or that it was good or that like we didn't put in enough federal stimulus spending. And I do think like I, I sympathize with their desire to help people, but I think it's not really backed by like models that have like MP, like from an empirical standpoint been like tried and tested and helpful um so i don't think mmt is a very good theory and i see like mmt as kind of pop economics like you write this like the deficit myth is the book that like really got uh, by stephanie kelton that really got mmt like popular sounds great it's great when you it's like an easy to read econ book but when you actually get into the like depths of it like it's not that feasible yeah. So I think the reason it gains so much traction is because it sounds politically attractive. You know, like, oh, this new economic theory, it's going to be so much more helpful for all these people. And a lot of the times, new schools of thought emerge in times of like kind of economic crisis because people are looking for something new to solve the problems that they can't solve with what they have now. And I feel like that's kind of what happened, um, kind of what happened with neoclassical economics because neoclassical economics rose in the 1970s post oil shock and this is kind of the i I don't think mmt has as much traction as neoclassical economics but it's it's suggesting a similar thing to me it's suggesting people are tired of the paradigm we have right now people are to see that it's not working it's hurting a lot of people and so they're kind of reaching for these like new ideological um ways of going about things like trying to reduce everything into, yeah, just like one easy, simple solution instead of looking at the enormity of the problem and actually like using the intellectual like brain power to go at it rigorously. 
Instead, you p package it in this one nice, really appealing thing. And like, it's just like a one size fits all, but there's no such thing. I agree. Sometimes it seems like it's like an attempt to warp the world into like how like you want it to be in order to make it like seem better, like seem like there are easier solutions to complex problems that are actually much harder to deal with. Moving on from the theory, what do you guys think of what is happening now? Like everything's like, I guess with your um, back to your episode of Mosh Lander, he said something really interesting. Uh, he said, I almost think the economy needs a good recession right now. Yeah. Or at least like a not terrible recession. A not terrible recession, but just like a, a normal, just to get things back on track. And that really resonated with me, with, with me a lot because I've been thinking at first when I saw like kind of the downwards trend, my 2008 trauma came in and I was like, here we go. It's about to be bad, guys. We're about, like, shit's about to hit the fan. And I'm not saying that's not going to happen, but the past month, I haven't seen it be, been happening as much as I thought it would. Yeah, like, like how, like, when you were initially seeing how, how badly the economy was hit back in, like, March of 2020, I think it led a lot of people to make a lot of inaccurate predictions. Like, another, like, do you remember the, the Josh Barrows interview of Jerusalem Dempsis? Um, where they were just both talking about how economists sort of thought that the problems post-COVID would be one way, and it sort of turned out to be the opposite. Um, yeah, that's I was I was I've been thinking about that a lot, and how how that should affect our view of economics. What do you think? How should it affect your view? I think there were like a part of the reason why a lot of people were downplaying the severity of inflation at the beginning was because of the fact that we've been having low inflation for such a long time. And like, even in, when it came to something like 2008, when we were pumping money into the economy to help it recover, even then it seemed that like we, we weren't doing enough and inflation just wasn't a problem at all. And it like, I guess maybe to some people, it would seem like a lot of the whole things about fiscal responsibility and making sure that like deficit spending wasn't that big of a deal. Maybe to some people, a lot of that seemed like it didn't really matter as much as some people thought it was. So like when we hit another like seemingly like thing that would be another like really terrible recession, our idea was just to go full throttle. And like, maybe that was the right choice. But even then we sort of underestimated the consequences from a different direction. Yeah. And I think, I, I think you're hundred percent right. We all, we used that 2008 as our point of reference, or even March 2020 was this huge shock as our point of reference. But we have to remember that these situations are completely different. Their causes are completely different. 2008 was a very much like internally, a internal problem. It was like, you know, it's like irresponsible regulation and banking. I'm not saying that the problems that are now that we have now aren't somewhat internal to the capitalist system. However, they are a little bit more like COVID is not like it wasn't like a bunch of bankers made up COVID. And like, we're just like, yeah, like it's not like subprime mortgages let everyone in the world to get infected with a virus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a little bit more external. So they are very different things. And a big two big differences I'm noticing between now and then is kind of the reaction in the media and the way the people in the industry are handling it. In 2008, I remember the news and I remember everyone was like, sell everything, close the stock markets. And now everyone seems to be like, okay, we're here. 
it's happening. Just like everyone stay calm. You know, don't like, don't, don't go too crazy. I mean, we're not all super calm, but it's not the same craziness. So to make a long story short, maybe Lander's right. Maybe this is exactly what we needed right now. Yeah. It's like a little bit of pain now to stave off much worse pain if we were to just not raise interest rates, for example. That's like an optimistic way to look at it. Then I think, okay, so a little bit of a recession to bring down the inflation. But that's presuming that the inflation is caused solely by the fiscal spending and not... That's like totally leaving out the fact that our supply, the supply chains and like the oil crisis and that Russia-Ukraine conflict probably isn't going to clear up in the near future. Hopefully, the touch wood, it does, but I don't see it getting better right now. So can the mild recession kind of cancel out that part of the cause? Well, it's a matter of locus of control. Like even if, like obviously, if we were to raise interest rates, that wouldn't like immediately cancel it. Like it wouldn't mean that like, suddenly there was no war in Ukraine and suddenly China would open up its economy again. But like, this is the situation where when it comes to the massive inflation we have right now, we're in control of some of it and not in control of other parts of it. So we have to at least like do the best we can with the parts that we're in control of. And then for the things that we're not in control of, we just have to accept it until it gets better.